Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey gang, it's Reed. Before we get started, you could probably tell that I don't have my normal booming baritone. And that's because I've got a bug that won't leave me or the family alone. But as we like to say in politics and in showbiz, the show must go on. I hope you enjoy it. I'll feel better and I'll be back to my bright, sunny voice next time. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, still a froggy Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Simon Rosenberg, founder and president of New Democratic Network, Indian, and the New Policy Institute, a leading liberal think tank and advocacy organization based in Washington, D.C. He's been a leader in efforts to modernize the center left in American politics over the past generation by working on a broad range of issues from global economic policy to America's changing demography. Simon is a frequent political commentator on cable news, and his ideas and work are often cited in the country's leading newspapers, magazines, and websites. He is a veteran of two presidential campaigns, including the 1992 Clinton War Room, and he came very close to being elected chair of the Democratic Party in 2005. I think that's a dubious honor at best, probably. (laughs) Today, he's coming to us from Washington, D.C., in studio. Simon, welcome to the show. Reed, it's great to be here, and I hope you feel better. Me too, man. It's been like a week now. So right before we started recording, I mentioned that you and I had done this one of these corporate boondoggle things, I think back in like 2010, when the world seemed normal. And I think it was like to a big company's pack board or something, right? And it's like you get up there and you, I think I was there because it was in California and you were on video and, you know, you do your five minute spiel, then you take questions and there's a moderator. You get paid, right? It's a great gig for an hour. And everything was so normal. Now, that was the year of the Tea Party. That was the year of a wipeout amongst Democrats that maybe we couldn't see coming and we couldn't see that the Republican Party had already shed its Reagan, Bush, Romney-esque skin, right? We just didn't recognize it for what it was yet. So take me back, you know, to a time when you're working for President Clinton. Would you consider yourself sort of the, the center left, the neoliberal part of the party that came up in the mid 90s? <laughs> yeah, I don't like the term neoliberal, but I, I prefer liberal, actually, into the classical understanding of it. But yeah, look, I'm a new Dem. The new Democrats were built in the 1980s, going back all the way back now, even further. Because as you remember, I mean, the Reagan victories, the Bush victories, the Democrats had lost at that point five out of six presidential elections. Some of them were huge historic blowouts, right? And I think the new Dems were created in the late 80s with the goal of trying to make the Democratic Party competitive in presidential elections again. That was the central goal, the Democratic Leadership Council, Bill Clinton and others. And if you now fast forward to today, since 1992, when Clinton won, we've won more votes in seven out of eight presidential elections. It's the best popular vote run by a political party in American history. And Nikki Haley's only reason for running for president, apparently. Right. I know. It's, I know. I mean, the criticisms you're hearing from Pompeo and Haley of the other Republicans has been an interesting thing in the last few weeks. And so, you know, I view the new Democrat project as being very successful. And I was, you know, very proud to be part of it all these years. 
So you are an interesting cat in politics, especially in Washington, D.C., which is you're thoughtful, you're very well grounded, you're very well researched, but you're also willing to cross dogma. You're also willing to be outspoken in a place where, like any company town, I guess, conformity is the best way to rise. I used to have this expression, and I'm sure everybody else has their own, in Washington, D.C., was the FUMU principle. Fuck up, move up. <laughs> um, make yourself somebody else's problem. The people that tell the truth are often the ones that don't move up but are shunted to the side because you know nobody likes hearing the emperor has no clothes. And there's lots of little emperors in the D.C. area. None of them have any clothes on, and they're all scared to death that somebody's going to turn the lights on. Well, that's part of what happened in this last election cycle, right? I mean, this my battle against the false red wave narrative. It changed me. I had, it was a really profound sort of political journey, which is that Tom Bonnier and I, who's a wonderful guy who runs a company called Target Smart, developed a lot of data showing that this was going to be a close competitive election and not a wave election, as everyone assumed. And the first piece I wrote about this was in October of 2021, where I said that we had seen a decoupling between Biden's approval rating and the congressional generic, meaning that Biden's numbers had come down, but Republicans weren't picking up anything because people could be disappointed in Biden and still have no interest in voting for MAGA, that you'd had an overwhelming majority of the country vote against MAGA twice in 2018 and 2020. And usually when a party gets spanked like that, they usually run towards a new politic. The Republicans at that point ran towards MAGA, which I felt was a huge strategic error probably going to limit you know, their ability to have the midterm that they wanted to have. And then we started seeing polling in the spring showing a close competitive election, and Dobbs happened, and Uvalde shooting, and all of a sudden, many voters were reminded graphically about all the things that they didn't like about MAGA. And so we argued that this was going to be a close competitive election. And you know, I could bore your listeners for a long time, but the media basically had bought into this narrative that it was going to be a red wave. And we were ridiculed and mocked. Nate Silver attacked me. A prominent MSNBC commentator said that I was a conspiracy theorist. Cook Report called me that I was producing astrology instead of political analysis. I mean, it was sort of, to your point about breaking from the herd, you know, we broke very powerfully from the herd and the herd, you know, dug in and fought. It wasn't just that they disagreed. They actually attacked Tom and I in the final few weeks of the election. And, you know, as a Democrat, thank God we were right. As an anti-MAGA Republican, thank God we were right. Because this election was actually an historically important election for Democrats, because not only did we have high inflation and low Biden approval rating, but we gained ground in some of the most important battleground states in the country in a midterm election. In Arizona, Colorado, Georgia, Minnesota, Michigan, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, we actually gained ground from 2020 in these critical places, an extraordinary achievement. And it means that as you look towards the future, right, towards 2024, you know, Democrats have now had three strong elections in the most critical battleground states. People have rejected MAGA three consecutive times in these places. And if the Republican nominee looks or smells like MAGA, these are voters that know what that looks like and don't like it. And it's a big problem, I think, for DeSantis and Trump, whoever emerges out of that scrum in the coming months. There's a lot there that I think we should get into, but the first thing you said was very close to the top of your statement, which was anytime a Republican, or I'm going to say a MAGA person, sometimes they're Republicans, but MAGA is the movement, America first, whatever you want to call it. Republicans are the political operatives and politicians within it. Whenever they come to the fork in the road that says, I can go back towards truth or I can go deeper into the abyss. And we saw this as we're recording Simon last night with Tucker Carlson, where he said after November 2020 
that there were plenty of reasons to believe that Trump had won, that this had been stolen, yada, yada, yada. Fox gets sued by Dominion Voting Systems. There's now texts that say, we called this too early. We're losing viewers. You know, they knew they were lying, right? He knew it was a lost cause. They knew they were lying. He knows it. He gets January 6th, you know, security camera footage from Kevin McCarthy. And they didn't even try to edit this to make it interesting, Simon. He just says it's all a lie. And now 2020 is a lie again. And so it's like Carlson confronted with the truth. And he knows it, right? Because he's the ultimate cynic. Chooses to go deeper and deeper and deeper to retain and attain more power, more viewers, more everything else. And Murdoch, both Rupert and Lachlan, are happy to go along with it. And I don't understand why more people don't understand, which is they either take that path or as others are taking that path, they just stand still. But they're never going to go to the truth. Yeah, I call it an off-ramp, right? I mean, there have been many off-ramps. I mean, particularly after January 6th, the Republican Party had a really powerful reason to take an off-ramp from MAGA. And yet we're now, two years later, it's the party's more MAGA than it was even two years ago, right? And I think, I think this thing, though, with Fox is a before and after moment for those of us who've been in this business a long time. You know, Fox was, I think, under Ailes. I was a regular Fox guest for 17 years. I did thousands of appearances on Fox, unpaid. I never was a paid commentator. I did it because I wanted to show conservatives that there were good Democrats and we could have civil dialogue. And I actually really enjoyed my time on Fox because Fox was, to a certain degree, Fox was fair and balanced. I got my say on the air. You know, I wasn't attacked by the anchors. I could say my piece. It changed, though, after Ailes left and after Trump won. Fox, I think, got swept up in the MAGA fever. And it, then it became hostile terrain. I was an enemy. I wasn't an opponent. I wasn't a Democrat. I was an enemy. And you could feel it on air. Things changed. And I think Fox has really you know, become almost a joke, actually. <laughs> I mean, what we've learned in the last two weeks is the curtain's been pulled back from the wizard. And there's no going back. There's no now opportunity for this city, this factory town, as you call it, to treat Fox as a news organization. I think the White House Correspondents Association has got a really important decision to make about what they do with Fox. I think that we know that Tucker Carlson spreads bullshit. Tom Tillis today, Senator Tillis, was asked about that video and said it was bullshit on the record, a Republican senator. Fox is a bullshit factory. We all know it. And we have to stop pretending and going along with the fiction that they've created. And I think the onus is on us. They're going to keep pretending they're a news organization. There's no reason for the rest of us to go along any longer. So I went to a dinner back in December, the kind of dinner I never got invited to when I was a Republican and probably won't get invited to again. And I was struck by the overarching need, desire, whatever it was, of this group of very smart, very prominent people, Simon, for the world to be as it was so that they could continue their march toward whatever it is which is typically more prominence and more money. But why is it so hard for the scales to fall from the eyes of the people who can and should do the most to help in this when otherwise they're just like, oh, look, we've got to cover both sides. There's Republicans we need. I can't attack them because I need them for this bill or that bill. Like, Why aren't more of the media and even members of your party who give lip service to the idea of the danger win, but I don't think they really believe it. Listen, I really admire, Reed, how you approach this, because I think it's really important. It's like the red wave. It's like the Wizard of Oz. It's like the Matrix, right? Whatever it is, there's this incredible normalcy bias in this town. If you believed in the red wave narrative last cycle, you had to believe that the American people were discounting things like an insurrection, 
or the extreme nature of the Dobbs decision. Uvalde and all the things that we all know, the ugliness of MAGA, you had to somehow, I mean, literally there were commentators in October saying, I guess now we know that women care more about eggs costing 30 cents more than losing bodily autonomy. And it was, of course, only white men could have said that, right? I mean, it was only the men who were saying things like, well, women don't really care about this abortion thing anymore anyway. And so I do think that this is a powerful thing, and it's part of what's changed me and what I'm doing. I mean, I'm shuttering down NDN, the organization I've run for a very long time, in part because I do think that America's hurtling into a new political age and that the organization I ran was built for a different time to do different things, and it did it really well. But I think I need to operate in a different environment. One of those ways is that we have to start taking much more seriously this notion of building a better media ecosystem, of calling out the bullshit on the right. Like we, Our discourse is flooded with negative sentiment and untruths every day that has poisoned the country. And I am going to work in my old organization, which was a 501c4, which was very limited in what it could do in terms of political speech and activity. I needed more of a broader palette. I needed the ability to engage in a different way. And that's why tomorrow on Wednesday, I'm launching a Substack, which will be one of the tools I'm going to be using to communicate in new and powerful ways as we reinvent this new media age together. But there's an urgency to this, Reed. It's why you do what you do every day. It's why you've been so important to this discourse about how we can't accept you know, the relentless, ongoing, negative sentiment, bullshit machine coming out of the right, and that we have to expect more out of them. And certainly, we should no longer go along with it. To the point you made, and I think where the media has been really complicit and where I faced it, I've been doing this for 30 years, right? I'm a pretty level-headed dude, and I got wildly attacked you know, by old friends of mine, right, for the commentary that I was doing and that I was proven to have been correct. And what is tragic about this media moment that we're in is that imagine that the entire commentariat got an election wrong. And by calling the red wave, it wasn't just a miss. It was the actual opposite of what happened in the election. And that there's been no self-reflection. There's been no discussion about what happened. There's been no, like, what do we need to do better to make sure that we're telling the truth to the American people? With the exception of the New York Times doing a very thoughtful expose on the red wave in late December, there's been no conversation in the national media about the scale and scope of the failure that we just witnessed. It's not a good sign. Well, and it wasn't like they hadn't just missed one in, say, 2016 either, right? Right. Well, and also, by the way, the stuff we were releasing was all public, right? There was lots of confounding data showing that this wasn't happening the way they thought they were doing it. You know, I give the New York Times, frankly, a lot of credit for having been probably the most self-reflective. Don't throw your phone on the floor. He said it, not me. I know. Listen, I'm, I'm not as big a fan of the Times as I used to be, but on this issue, they've been pretty good. You know, look, the right-wing noise machine is a very powerful force. It has the ability to take things like fentanyl and Halloween candy and make it an absurdity and make it into something that we're all talking about every day. A lot of the work I'm going to be doing is helping Democrats, the center-left, the pro-democracy movement, figure out how to more effectively counter this right-wing noise machine. And that's going to be a core of the work that I'm going to be doing going forward. Well, and God bless that. And we'll get the address of the Substack before we let you out of here so that everybody can go and sign up. But let me ask you this. You know, we have talked about this before. As Republican operatives, you come up and it's just win, baby. You win your race. Doesn't matter really even who the candidate is, so long as you win. And as you know, in our time, and even now, it's even worse, that ethos has, you know, metastasized into anything beyond my imagination. But Democrats and a lot of the elites 
of both the Republican and the Democratic Party, especially the donor set, want the world as it was, but they don't want to get dirty fixing it. They want people like you and me to do it, but they don't really like hearing about it. They certainly don't like seeing it. They don't necessarily want to fund it, but if it doesn't go the way they want it to, like, you know, they're happy to blame somebody. Like, why does the left have so much trouble throwing down the boxing gloves and just getting into it? You know, it's a very complicated question, and there's different aspects of what you raise. I share your concern. I am organizing my life in a very different way in order to deal with the politics that are in front of us and not behind us, because there is no going back. I mean, we're just going forward now. And I think that we're in a new political age in America. I think the rise of authoritarian governments, the challenges of climate change are making many of the issues that you and I have worked on, Reed, are, are now ceding to a whole new set of really serious challenges that we weren't working on before. I think this media ecosystem that we're living in now has to be changed. Democrats have to learn how to get louder. We need to become information warriors. I mean, the story that I tell when I do my presentations to Democrats is that I worked in the war room 30 years ago. And the way that you think of a war room is like 20 sweaty kids drinking Red Bulls, you know, producing, you know, videos. And I was one of those sweaty kids. But now we have to think of the war room as 4 million proud patriots wired together, networked together, amplifying content to sort of help you know, fight back against the information superiority on the right. And I think we have to talk about this much more. I still think that the hold of the old TV generation, the top-down media that wasn't networked and amplified, despite our party being so young and having so many young people in it, there's still kind of an old media construct that we're still fighting against. Well, because the incentives are all screwed up. The incentives are all screwed up. You know this because of media buys and everything else. And Listen, I was the lead outside strategist at the DCCC in the 2018 cycle when we flipped. And I, you know, I started my career as a TV producer and writer. I worked for ABC News and I wrote and produced primetime television shows in my 20s. And so I grew up in that business. And one of the big things we did in 2018 that I'm really proud of is that there was a much more emphasis on candidate-produced organic media that was internet-based, not television-based, and also to raise money into the campaigns themselves to not become reliant on this outside media. And what you've seen in this last cycle, and I don't think this has gotten nearly enough coverage, is that Republicans may have spent more money than we did in the aggregate, but our candidates were outspending Republican candidates by four to five to one in these races. You'd much rather have your candidates have their own money to tell their own story. And the Republican reliance on these outside organizations has become a little bit of a political crisis for them, I would argue, because we figured out in 2018 how to start raising vast sums of money into our actual campaigns. And so one of the reasons we did so well in the battleground in 2022 was that the campaigns in the battleground had unprecedented cash in the bank. They could control the information environment. We could start hitting GOTV targets that are down the second and third tier, ones that we could never reach before because we never had the kind of huge muscular grassroots and campaigns that we had. We have built a very powerful people-based politics on our side that the Republicans, even if they began to try to match it over the next two years, they're not going to be able to between now and 2024. I mean, DeSantis is going to have an extraordinary amount of money. But to your point, there's a certain point with traditional media buying where the return on the dollar starts dropping down to 20 cents, 10 cents. And I think that the key is, I think the DCCC and the Democrats have started to make this media transition. You know, what happened on the Democratic side during COVID after Trump and the rise of MAGA is there's been this explosion of Zoom-based grassroots groups all around the country 
that are meeting once a week, twice a month, who are engaged, who are raising incredible amounts of money, producing remote texting, remote calling into swing districts. This is a vast new community of patriots who are going up and fighting every day. I don't even know that the National Party and the Washington Democrats even know this is all happening. If they did, they wouldn't like it. I know. And so one of the things I'm doing is I'm speaking to these groups as much as I can. I've already done eight of these meetings this year already. It's only early March. I'm happy to join anyone anytime. Yeah, no, we should do some of these together because I I think it's so inspiring. Part of what, for me, what happened in this last election cycle is that when I wondered whether I was right about the election and could I really believe the American people were just going to forget the ugliness of MAGA, when I gave presentations to these groups, there were hundreds of people ready to go fight, rolling up their sleeves, doing the work, right? Understood how important this election was, knew about MAGA, were under no illusion about what they represented. And what's incredible is how big that part of our family has gotten, how muscular it's gotten. One of my jobs in the next two years is to encourage and lay hands on this world, to help them grow and help them expand, because it's very Tuckvillian, right? It's very cool, actually, right? For those of us who've been in this business, right, who know To see average citizens self-organizing into powerful forces, it's just an amazing development. And it's one of the things that gives me hopium about 2024. Well, and, you know, we started our union project last March, about a year ago, 70 plus partner organizations, 70,000 volunteers. And, you know, we're going to try and double that by November of next year. But I think the other part, too, that you note is so important. You know, I had Gall Beckerman on about his book about movements and that the friction of these people working together, right? Getting on the Zoom call, but then actually getting and doing something. The friction becomes the glue between these people, between their mission and everything else. Then I remember when in October, November of 21, Simon, when we were traveling the country and talking to people and they said, what do you think 2022 is about? Because all these Democrats were like, it's over, it's over, it's over. And I'm like, well, if you think it's over, then we'll find a way to get there. But I said, you know, this election is going to be about democracy. That's what this election is going to be about. And people were like, that's too big. Nobody understands it. It's too vague. I said, I just respectfully disagree. I said, I think it's the only thing big enough to give people an umbrella big enough for folks to all stand underneath together. I think the Democratic consulting class has had a really hard time with what you're describing. I mean, what the fight that I had at the DCCC in 2018 was, well, people want to talk about kitchen table issues. And I kept saying, look, we have to make Trump's craziness a kitchen table issue. I mean, we have to take what's happened to the Republican Party and make it something that's tangible and understandable to people. And I think This is where the American people and many of our own voters were way ahead of the political class. They were highly motivated. Our candidates were raising extraordinary amounts of money. I mean, every one of these groups that I've spoken to in the last couple of months all have programs working in the Wisconsin Supreme Court race right now. I mean, and raising money, doing texting, you know, doing remote phone calling. Look, the barrier to entry to engage in U.S. politics because of Zoom has been lowered dramatically. And it's brought huge numbers of people in, in ways that they can be listening to you or to me in their kitchen while they're making dinner. They have many more choices in how to engage. And what it's done is that it's created an explosion of citizen activism in the country. Thank God, right? And let me say this. This is the thing that I talk about when I give my presentation is that I talk to these groups and say that, listen, I'm so proud of you. I mean, it's your money and your work that's made us have three consecutive elections that we can be proud of. But we need to do one other thing other than all this election work, which is that we need to become information warriors and we need to be involved in trying to be louder in the daily discourse. Because what happened in 2022 is that we had two elections, really. We had a bluer election 
inside the battleground where we ran these big muscular campaigns. Right. So that's where we focused all our energy. Yeah. And we did unbelievably well. But where we didn't do that, we fell back. We fell back in California, Florida, Texas, and New York. And so the lesson to me from that election is that we have to do both. We have to do the work that we've been doing through the campaigns, but we need to become much more serious about being involved in the daily information war. And the way I like to say this is that imagine that if you can reach 10 people a day, there are 4 million people doing that. That's 40 million people a day. It all adds up, right? And you have to be loud without being annoying, right, is the way I describe it. We all have to learn how to be louder because they're very loud. And we can't pretend any longer that this doesn't matter. But it's loud and ugly. They are loud and ugly. And I mean, if we got to be the cheerleaders on the sidelines, do you want to be cheering their cheers or our cheers? That's my whole point is that we have a great story to tell. We have to tell it. We have a great story to tell about the economy. We have to tell it. I have a whole presentation. If your listeners want to come to my new Substack starting tomorrow and watch it, it's called With Democrats, Things Get Better. And it's a story about the Democratic Party since 1989. And what I show is that since 1989 and after Reagan's successful presidency, the Cold War ended and a new political age began. And since that period, there have been 48 million jobs created in America. 46 million have been created under Democratic presidents. And what I show through just data, relentless charts and graphs, is that Democrats have governed well. We've been a modern party. We've understood the challenges in front of us. We've built a politics that could govern the country well, while the Republican Party has repeatedly struggled. We've seen you know, three consecutive recessions under Republican presidents spiraling deficits. And the contrast between us governing well repeatedly and Republicans struggling to govern well is a contrast that I think is critical that Democrats establish in the coming years. And so this presentation goes back and tries to give the new information warriors in our family ammunition to go out and make the argument that we need to make to help push back on the right-wing noise machine. But how do you match that with a belief system that people can get involved with? Because yes, I think that's all important. And I think it is an important predicate to lay down for people in the bottom line of like, Democrats, whether you like them or not, seem to actually care about the country. And Republicans don't give a shit about you or anybody else. Yeah. Listen, I think if we can establish that when you trust us with power, we do a good job, I think that is half the ballgame. You mean you're not going to try and overthrow the government? Right. Or that wages go up and deficits go down and the country moves forward. And particularly when you're an incumbent party, which is what we are now. You know, voters will ask, you know, did you make things better? And I think Joe Biden has got to make a very simple case that he's made things better. I mean, that's what you get evaluated on as an incumbent party. And like your party, we had our own inter-party wars that took place. And Look, we, I lost. You know, you Bad, lost. Badly. I, yeah, no. Badly. And, and the establishment Democrats, by the way, have continued to prevail in part because when they've been in power, they did a good job. I mean, you know, the establishment wing of the Democratic Party is still in charge because when we've been in power, we've made things better. And I think what's happened is that we've been shamed a little bit by forces that are not in the establishment to run away from many of our achievements as Democrats. And I think that that's been part of the primary fights that we've had at a presidential level. I think that, you know, Bernie Sanders is not a Democrat and he's crapped all over the Democratic Party and our achievements. And I, I think that he's persuaded a lot of people in the Democratic Party that we are the virtuous party that's helped defeat fascism in the middle of the last century, built a modern world that's created more opportunity. Defeated communism too. Yeah, defeated communism. And we've also created a global system that is created a golden age for humanity. And we have to be far more proud of our achievements and our accomplishments in our own understanding of who we are ourselves 
in order to go persuade others that they should come with us. And I think that a lot of the work that I'm going to be doing is helping Democrats understand their own journey as a party, what we've done, the good that we've done. So we become more powerful information warriors when we have to go out and do battle against MAGA in the elections in 2023 and 2024. Simon, about a year ago, I was in Northern California at a fundraiser and I asked a question of the crowd, 30 or 40 people. How many people here fly American flags on their houses? Not one hand went up. And I said, why not? I don't want people to think I'm MAGA. I don't want people to think I support Trump. I don't want people to think I'm a Republican. That's I'm like, a problem. But it's your flag. It's not their flag. They're not allowed to appropriate it for their purposes. And so I guess my broader question is, why have Democrats in the last however many decades been afraid to rally to the flag when it is, I believe, the big D Democratic Party is the only pro-democracy party we have left and the pro-democracy movement. Like that flag is ours too. Our values are represented in those stripes and those stars and that blue field. And if we let them take it, they will, as they did at the Capitol, beat us over the head with it. Yeah. Listen, that was a sad story to hear. And I think that, you know, the original name of this presentation I do with Democrats, Things Get Better, was Patriotism and Optimism. And I called it a, a response to the poisonous pessimism of Donald Trump and MAGA. And I fully agree with you. I mean, we have to contest you know, we're the party of patriotism and optimism. We're the party of freedom and opportunity. We are the party that built the modern world that's created more freedom for more people than any time in human history. I mean, these are things that we have to embrace because they're true. And, you know, one of the things that I go back to and I encourage all of your listeners to check in on is FDR's Four Freedoms speech. Oh, and, sure. Of you course. Know, you, I'm sure you talk about this yes. all the time. And Rob, let's go ahead and put a link to it in the show notes. Yeah. And I'm reading, I'm reading a book about it now, about the origins of the Four Freedoms. And to me, when I go, it's the most important speech, political speech probably ever given in American English. It was in the State of the Union in 1941. It's interesting. It's much earlier than people really understand. And if you go to the FDR library, they actually have wonderful resources to learn more about the speech. They show the original draft. They go through the history of how FDR himself added those terms, the four freedoms himself. He wrote it in the fifth draft of the speech. It's kind of a remarkable story. But to me, that speech, when you want to think about America and how we should be so proud of this remarkable country and everything that we've done, the opportunity that our families have been given and the, make sure that those opportunities are given to our kids and our grandkids, is that that speech laid out in four simple phrases, right? The basic structure of the modern world. And it was based on freedom and opportunity. It wasn't based on government and re regulation and restriction. It was based on this notion of freedom to push off against authoritarianism, fascism, and eventually communism, right? Right. And as a predicate, he knew he needed to lay because he knew that the United States was not going to stay out of that war forever. Right. And he also knew that he needed to create a rallying cry. And what happened is that rallying cry became the rallying cry for the creation of the United Nations. The four freedoms are in the United Nations Charter. It became the rallying cry for how we grew the modern world. And, you know, what I'm really proud of, and I think it's no question that read your party's greatest contribution to the United States in the last 70, 80 years was finishing the Cold War. And what Bush and Reagan did to consolidate and to end the Soviet Union and to challenge communist China to evolve into a different place was world-altering work that was done with us, but, but certainly led by, you know, the Republicans. 
And I, when I look back at Bill Clinton's presidency, what Bill Clinton did is he took the work of Reagan and Bush and extended the American system to the entire world. And now where we are today is that there's now Russia and China now are pushing back. And it's why we're in a different political age, because that age where we were expanding American influence in the American system and this idea of openness and opportunity and freedom to the rest of the world, there's now a rejection of that that's organized and fierce and something that we have to take seriously. And why I think we're entering a period where now this is a period more of conflict than of expansion. And I think a lot of the work I'm trying to do is to try to talk to the American people about the nature of the conflict that we're actually really in now. You know, in Europe, they have this concept of hybrid war, where it's geopolitical, it's information, it's digital and cyber. It's, you know, it's a much more complex notion of a conflict. You know, when you talk about what the Democrats need to do to understand the nature of the conflict that they're really in, to me, this is really fundamental, that we have to understand that MAGA, Russia, whatever it is, I call it greater MAGA, you know, which is that MAGA is an ally of Putin and an ally of Orban and an ally of the illiberal forces in Europe, is that we have to understand that what they do is they understand the nature of conflict very differently than we do. It's what you they talk enjoy about. it. Yeah, they enjoy it. And there's a at its core, lying to people shows the contempt that you have for democracy in itself. It's a very fundamental thing, right? And so I think that part of what we have to do, you asked this, and I'm coming back to it later in the discussion, is that Democrats and Joe Biden need to help the American people understand the nature of the conflict that we're in. Look, it is existential. We should not shy away from that. It is existential. And I think we've been a little timid on our side. I think we have been timid about leveling with the American people about the nature of the conflict that we're really in and that this is cyber, it's information warfare. I mean, what's interesting is if you pay attention to European politics, they are two, three, four years ahead of us in describing the nature of the information conflict that exists in Europe with the Russians. We still act as if this stuff isn't happening. That You know, I mean, I think about this every day when I look at DeSantis, who has embraced this anti-vax stuff with such incredible intensity. It's become so important to him. It's almost definitional to his entire presidential run. You know that we know now through research that the first major social media information engagement by the Russians into American society was to promote anti-vax in 2014. And for Ron DeSantis to know that promoting anti-vaxism was something that the Russians did and invested enormous amounts of money in and to embrace that politics, knowing that it's something that was accelerated and expanded by the Russian government, we're just operating with an understanding of our politics that's outside of the world that you and I grew up in. And I really do appreciate, Reed, the work that you do to help expand people's imagination and understanding of the nature of the conflict that we're in now. And I think we can't be naive. And to your point, what I want to do is become a more effective combatant in this fight because I think the stakes are so high. And I want to get us to a point where we're not scared that if we have a bad election, that our democracy could go away. And that's something that we've got to do as Democrats, you know, take far more seriously about this isn't just about winning elections any longer. It's about something much bigger than that. Right. Why do we talk about Election Day 2024? Because it's the day when something tangible will happen. A choice will be made by the people. And, you know, that's how our system works, hopefully continues to work. But the fight that you have to do, all of this stuff that we're talking about, whether or not it's the groups on the ground and the Zoom calls and you writing your Substack and us doing ads and me doing this podcast, it's all additive, right? And think about this. For all of the stuff that we've been talking about, all of the good things that have happened, 
all of the good works that Biden has gotten done and big victories in big battleground states, think about how still how close everything is. And the osmotic effect of all of this ugliness and evil, that it doesn't have to get everybody. It's just got to get enough. And that's what keeps me up at night. So let me tell you what I'm, one of the things I'm going to be working on, and I'm publishing my first piece on this in a couple of days, is that I'm going to be starting a project called Get to 55. And it's about how do Democrats get to 55% of the vote in 2024? How do we expand the coalition that we've built to really crush MAGA in a way that could start to loosen its grip on the Republican Party? Because that's what it's going to take. I mean, these, as Bill Kristol, I think, has written so elegantly, I mean, the fact that Republicans were able to win the House by this very small margin was enough to keep MAGA, you know, the idea that maybe MAGA wasn't so bad after all, right, in these sort of political calculations that elected officials make. And so I think that we have to, in the way that Joe Biden went big legislatively in 2021, 2022, we have to go big politically in 2024. And so my initial premise, and I'm going to throw this out to the world for all of us to work on together, right, the way that we all work in this networked way now, is I think there are four groups that we really have to look at to expand our coalition. People under 45, Hispanics, never MAGA, as I call them, the Reed Galens of the world, right? And then the residual impact of Dobbs and the ending of Roe, which I think is something that, as we saw in Kansas and Michigan, there is a disruptive event in the Republican coalition if Democrats play it right. And I think we've got to be doing work and research and developing strategies to expand our coalition, to not reposition ourselves, but to grow in order to deny MAGA oxygen and to put MAGA out of business. In my first piece that's coming out this week, I'm calling on the party to launch a national effort to register and turn out young voters. Well, they saved our bacon last year. Yeah, listen, the most democratic part of our coalition is the people that vote the least. Well, let's change that. And don't consider themselves Democrats, probably. Many don't and see themselves as outside the party, but aligned with us ideologically, but not politically. Well, we can change that. You know this. I mean, with a lot of money, and we're living in a time of abundance when it comes to money now as Democrats and not in a time of scarcity, is that just like we defied history in 2022 and did something that nobody thought was possible, we need to dramatically increase the turnout of young people. If we can do that, and I show in my document, I'm going to be releasing my piece in a couple of days, the gains that we can make by just getting the under 45 population to vote at the same percentage that it exists in the population, we could win by 10 points in 2024. And so we just have to think differently now of how we're not in this scrum where, you know, if we have a misstep, if we sneeze wrong, that the Republicans can seize power and end our democracy. We've got to reimagine our coalition, grow it by making alliances with people, frankly, Reed. I mean, one of the things I'm really interested in is if we lived in a parliamentary system, you and Bill Kristol and Liz Cheney would have been brought into our coalition. Liz would have been a cabinet member, right? We would have created this sort of temporary expanded coalition to defeat MAGA together. We don't have that way in our system of doing that. But it happened, I think, organically last cycle because of your work, because of the work of Bulwark, the work of Liz Cheney. If you look in many of the battleground states, there were hundreds of prominent Republican officials who endorsed Democrats in key places like in Nevada and Michigan, Arizona and other places that in essence created a virtual coalition, right? Expanded coalition. But maybe we need to do this in a more formal way. I don't know what that is, but to your point, we have to imagine our politics differently now to be successful. Well, let me just say this. I think it's an important piece because, you know, with the union, it was me and a guy named Angus DeRocher, who's an absolute hero, 
from New Hampshire, sitting in a coffee shop in Austin, Texas in November of 2021. And I said, I think this is what we're going to need for 2022. And we're going to make it even bigger for 2024. And Angus and a team of all volunteers, basically for the price of a website, went out and created this grassroots army. Because I knew the exact same thing you did, which was until and unless we find all of these people who are willing to lock arms in this moment and march forward together or huddle in the trench, whatever metaphor you want to use, it ain't going to work, right? And it's got to be a necessarily heterogeneous coalition because over the years, none of us have had to be here together. But that's the strength of it, which is we're all here for the same reason, for the same reason in this moment. Now, look, do I want to be a part of a reimagining of a new political era and epoch in this country with you, Simon? I do. And I think those are worthy conversations to have and worthy thoughts to contemplate. But right now, I got about three more trenches I got to get to. And so once I get to those three trenches, if I get one more, okay, now we could talk about what Versailles looks like. But this idea that somehow we could snap our fingers and it'll all be magically better is, you know, in Joe Didion's words, the height of magical thinking. I think there are three things I'll say about what you just said. One is, you raised this in the beginning, is that Democrats have to reimagine our politics. We're stuck. Too many of us are stuck in an old paradigm that doesn't exist any longer. And we have to free the center left and the pro-democracy movements to invent a new politics that will allow us to be successful. Too many of us are looking backwards and not looking forwards. And it's really important. And that's part of what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be throwing a lot of stuff against the wall, creating conversations, because I don't know what the right solution is, but I know that we can't keep doing what we were doing before because it's too dangerous, right? We can't keep hoping that we're going to win by one state and 10,000 votes. We've got to do better. We've got to be more effective in this pro-democracy center-left movement. But the second thing is, to your point, there are millions and millions of people who are ready to go to work, and we've got to give them stuff to do. We've got to engage them and really work together. And it's disaggregated, right? It's decentralized. And that's the beauty of it, right? People feel ownership over these communities that they've built. And they're never going to go back into an easy relationship with the party, in my view, based on what I've seen. Because they're with friends and allies and people who they've built something. They have that joy of having constructed something together, right? Which is the most gratifying thing in our life. But the final thing is, is that we can't lose sight, to your point, of the blocking and tackling of the day-to-day. And it's why I think we have to understand that in the short term, if I could give my family an assignment, what can we do in 2023 that will make it more likely that we're successful in 2024? We have to win the economic argument with the Republicans. I don't think we can have the kind of election we want to have if Joe Biden and the Democrats are down five to 10 points on the economy next year. You know, we shouldn't be down with them. The Republicans have led us to three consecutive recessions and spiraling deficits and economic decline. We've seen three very successful Democratic presidents in a row. We have to win this argument. This is, to me, the one thing we all have to do together. It's the one universal assignment this year. My presentation that I give is largely providing people with basic economic data that they can use to fashion it in whatever way they want. But I think Biden has got to really, you saw it in the State of the Union. They understand they got to go sell better. They know, they understand it, right? And I think if we don't win, if we're not in positive terrain by the end of 2023 on the economy, it's going to be much tougher for us to have the kind of election next year that we want to have. So let's talk about that briefly before we let you go. So how do you see 2024 shaping up? Simon, what do you think I'm missing? You know, I think one of the things that the Republican Party is going to really struggle with is DeSantis. They want him to be Reagan. They want him to be a normal center-right politician, and he isn't. 
he made a decision to become just as MAGA as Trump. And the stuff he's doing in Florida, in many ways, in my view, could even be arguably scarier than some of the things that Trump has done. And I think for the Republicans, you know, I talk to groups that are mixed groups all the time, right, that have many Republicans in them. And there is this hopium on the Republican Party that DeSantis is going to end up somehow being a country club Republican, you know, who isn't, you know, this kind of radical, illiberal, dangerous force that he's become. And I think that that's what I see in the short term. It's why I'm so optimistic. Let me just say, getting back to 2024, I'm very optimistic about where things are for Democrats right now. We've had three very good elections in the battleground. There's enormous understanding in the battleground about the dangers of MAGA. Both Trump and DeSantis are going to have a very hard time, whoever the nominee is, of saying that they're not MAGA. It's how they got there, right? It's how, it was the price of admission. And certainly, you can imagine DeSantis becoming Reagan again, right? Trying to sort of change his image. I think he's given us too much. It's too to much work. videotape. There's too much videotape. There's too much. You've done this professionally. There's too much to work with. They overcommitted. I think he misread the room. I think they thought a red wave was coming. And they put him on a course in late 2022 to where we are now that was way to the right of where the battleground is. The decision for him to go to six weeks on abortion is a catastrophic mistake for him in the battleground states. It's something even Trump said was stupid. Think about that. Yeah, no, no. And I think DeSantis, look, DeSantis is obviously a talented, capable politician, but he may not be good enough to navigate the current Republican Party and then win the nomination and get elected president. It just may be beyond his skill set, right? He still looks a little crude and rough and not really ready for prime time, in my view. Look, I think Joe Biden's going to run, and I think we should win. But if he doesn't run, I think we're going to have a very spirited primary. I don't think Kamala Harris will be anointed. I think that she will be challenged. And that the generational turn that has begun in our party, that Nancy Pelosi so elegantly began in a very formal way by her passing the baton to Hakeem Jeffries and the new team, that that generational turn that is underway, that is going to be a very major part of our story over the next five to 10 years, will accelerate dramatically. And I will tell you, Reed, as somebody who's been in this business for 30 years, the next generation of Democrats are very, very strong. And I feel that we're in very good hands. And so if Biden runs, we can win. I think if we have a spirited primary and elect a new person, I think we can win. And so I would rather be us than them as we head into 2024. Well, listen, I'd always rather be us than them because can you imagine <laughs> being them for any <laughs> amount of time? All right. Well, Simon, before we let you go, where can our folks find you online on social media and where can we find your new Substack? So I'm on Twitter at SimonWDC. I'm very active on Twitter. My Substack, you can just search Substack Simon Rosenberg. I'm calling it Hopium Chronicles. It's got a little bit of a funky name, but everyone, once they become part of it, will understand why we've named it that. It's called Hopium Chronicles. I'm leaning in to this notion of hope as a way of organizing our politics going forward. I was a Bill Clinton guy. He was the man from hope. And so Hopium Chronicles, and then also I have a YouTube channel, but my primary home is going to be increasingly in Substack. And also, I'll be producing a lot of podcasts and interviews like this with my friends and family and many of the most important leaders of the next Democratic Party. I'm going to be really trying to give an opportunity to this next generation, both the operatives as well as the elected officials, who I think are doing remarkable things, a place to come and talk about the future, not just about the past. Well, we look forward to joining you on this journey, uh, Simon, and thank you for joining us today. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Simon Rosenberg, thanks for joining us today. And everybody else, we'll see you next time.
thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.